This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What is it about the escape that we admire? Our favorite films, books, and television shows are often considered exercises in escapism. And then there are the literal escapes, from The Count of Monte Cristo to The Shawshank Redemption. We sympathize with the cornered and the captured. We root for them to find freedom, and along the way, we find a kind of liberation in stories that are messy and often tragic, but always a journey towards independence. In the real world, however, in life, the downtrodden don't always make it out, and the ones that do don't always deserve it. It's not difficult to imagine Martin McNally's life as a series of escapes, some successful, others disastrous. When he was young, it was an escape from a predetermined path, an escape from the routine of schooling and the expectations of his family. When he was in the military, it was an escape from the stifling bureaucracy and the demands of authority. When he was back in civilian clothes, it was an escape from the trappings of the so-called American dream, not the good parts, but the tedium and compliance of an ordinary life. And when he was a criminal, the escapes, or the attempts anyway, became more literal. Mac went for the big score, the one on American Airlines Flight 119 to Tulsa. For then, he was an optimist, intent on making a fool of the law, stealing a fortune, and nothing more. Martin McNally was a criminal. He never physically harmed anyone while executing his crimes, but he violated the liberty of others and took hundreds of lives in his hands. He entered prison with actual murderers, serial killers, and rapists. And life in maximum security facilities meant becoming a new kind of person, a different kind of survivor. And if he wasn't careful, the young man who rescued John Davis from drowning in the pool, who pulled his fellow soldiers out of the wreckage of a crashed plane, that man might cease to exist. And so it seemed Martin McNally had one last escape attempt left in him. And this one would be his most difficult yet. I'm Danny Wisentowski, and this is American Skyjacker, The Final Flight of Martin McNally. In this episode, Matt copes with the futility melancholy, and moral decay that often comes with a life sentence in a maximum security prison and struggles to keep hope alive. At the start of 1979, Martin McNally was seven years into serving multiple life sentences without a chance for parole at the Marion Supermax Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. 
I uh, got my sentences on February the 9th of 1979 for the helicopter uh, escape attempt. A lot of inmates are doing time, they will ask the uh, doctor to prescribe drugs, prolixin, stelazine, uh, thorazine, so they could just zombie out. I never had that desire to uh, take any drugs while I was in prison. I wanted a leveled mind, level brain, uh, and level thought systems, and I had good paper. I wasn't a child molester, uh, pedophile, uh, sex offender, uh, rat, snitch. If you got bad paper, you're in trouble wherever you go, especially at a maximum security penitentiary. There aren't uh, many aircraft pirates, and uh, that gave me probably an air of uh, celebrity in the prisons. I would be in a cell and uh, twiddling my thumbs, thinking uh, what my next escape plan was. Everything was focused on escaping, getting out of prison, getting on the lamp. And uh, while it never materialized, that was a twist of fate that benefited me uh, decades down the road. Mac's final escape attempt wouldn't involve helicopters, hostages, or hijackings. Shortly after his sentencing in the Barbara Oswald case, he decided his best option was to do a little book shopping. I did a lot of work in the law library. I did a lot of research. I would represent myself as uh, an attorney. Martin McNally uh, of McNally and McNally Law Firm. Max spent his days reading and writing thousands of pages of legal motions, often in longhand, editing and reorganizing the work with tape and scissors binding the notes with shoelaces. While Mac's 1972 skyjacking case was a lost cause on appeal, the small-time con man, this high school dropout, proved to be a brilliant jailhouse lawyer when it came to exonerating himself for the 1978 escape attempt. During the trial, Mac had raised concern about the publicity of the case in the region's newspapers and radio stations. Kenny Johnson, Mac and Trapnell's third man in the helicopter escape attempt from Marion, had pleaded guilty before trial, taking the Fed's offer for a 10-year sentence in exchange for being a witness for the prosecution. The news coverage of Johnson's plea had strongly implicated the two remaining escapees, who, Mac argued, had faced a biased jury. The judge had refused Mac's request to interrogate the jury members and the trial went on, ending in the jury's guilty verdict. It took more than a year, but on December 30th, 1980, Mack finally got his argument in front of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. I raised prejudicial pretrial and trial publicity, and I'll be damned if the Court of Appeals says, yeah, that's right. They reversed my convictions for aircraft piracy, and aiding and abetting uh, uh, kidnapping aircraft piracy on the helicopter. My outdate was 2082 without that reversal. With a reversal that came from the Seventh Circuit, I had life from 1972 concurrent. So I was in good shape. On one hand, 
Mack had managed to cut three quarters of a century off his release date. But even with his new acquittals, Mack had a life sentence to serve for his 1972 hijacking. And he was hardly a model prisoner with his criminal history and recent escape attempt. This meant precisely zero chance of swaying a parole board for early release. And that meant adapting for his next challenge, surviving in prison for the rest of his life. This was a task for which Mac proved very capable. During that time there, uh, I was working on reversing my original conviction. I had a TV in my cell. I could watch TV all night long or whatever. I also had a lot of pornographic magazines. That was nice. I had uh, very little problems, very little problems with other uh, prisoners, other inmates. And if I did have any problems, I dealt with it. I won't go into it any uh, particular cases, but yeah, people that got under my skin and uh, uh, I considered a threat, uh, I would deal with it. That's the way you, you do uh, in prison. Mac's pre-escape years in Leavenworth in the mid-1970s showed an inmate more than willing to use violence. In one instance, he was charged for wielding pencils as shanks in an assault against two guards though he was acquitted at trial. While we were unable to verify all of the altercations that Mac had in prison, it's important to note that a lot of these incidents go unreported. But also, Mac has a reputation to uphold, a vital asset to a man with his rap sheet. Mac eventually mellowed out. After the 1978 escape attempt, he largely spent his time on further appeals. But all work and no play wasn't his style. As it turns out, Martin McNally and his old friend Garrett Trapnell found a lot of creative ways to pass the time behind bars. Trapnell came to my cell one day and he says, um, I'm thinking about running for president. And I said, what? He said, I'm thinking about running for president. Can I do this? And I said, well, uh, let's see what we can do. Write the uh, Federal Election Commission and ask him for the application and all of this. So that's what he did. And he ran for president. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
Some of the candidates couldn't make it to the convention because of prior commitments. Among them, Garrett Brock Trapnell. He's in a federal penitentiary in Illinois, serving multiple terms for kidnapping, conspiracy, and skyjacking. But a run for the White House needs more than just a president. In order to be a complete ticket, Trapnell needed a running mate. And who better than Martin McNally, a Navy veteran who shared similar policy views on key public issues, like skyjacking and escaping from prison. He wanted me to be his nominee for the vice presidential position. And I said, well, I don't want to be that right now. I'll come in as the uh, national campaign manager. And that's what I was. We had uh, about 10 people in the control unit uh, helping us prepare letters and solicitations. And we sent out a lot of mail. And we started to get money uh, from uh, people in the street. Our purpose in this uh, presidential campaign was to pull in about a half a million dollars in uh, political contributions and then pull the plug and take our money and live good in prison. But it didn't turn out that way. The uh, Bureau of Prisons snapped that we're getting all this money and uh, we didn't get any money. While their plan didn't come to fruition and America was never afforded the, let's say, privilege of a Trapnell-McNally presidency, their stunt did have lasting effects on the way things are done in this country, specifically with how federal inmates are now allowed to communicate with the outside world. Something else happened in this thing, and it's my worst nightmare. We were sending out all these letters, sometimes 50 to 100 letters a day, all over the country, to news media. We were everywhere, especially in Marion, uh, W3D radio, every day they were talking about these prisoners running for president. And we were at the prison just laughing like hell, having fun. In March of 1979, Norman Carlson, the Bureau of Prisons director in Washington, D.C., issued a press release, and here's what he said. Under no circumstances can the Bureau of Prisons allow its prisoners to run for elective office while in prison. So effective in June, there's not going to be any more free postage. Prisoners are going to have to pay for the postage. Well, when that came out throughout the country, federal prisoners were up in arms. Those son of a bitches, look what they did to us. No more free mail. Now we're going to have to start paying for postage. So that stupid presidential campaign has saved the federal government of probably 50, maybe $100 million. And that is my worst, worst nightmare. And one of my really greatest regrets. Think about all the gold that these prisoners have to shoot to the federal government. And I apologize to all the prisoners in the country, all the federal prisoners. This isn't more Mac McNally bluster. It's all true. In a July 14, 1980 story titled Federal Inmates Wear Out Their Free Mail Privilege, the Washington Post reported that federal prison officials had come to the conclusion that giving inmates free mail was, quote, a mistake. The story continued. 
The last straw, apparently, was the inmate who announced he was running for President of the United States and sent out more than 150 letters under the free privilege soliciting money for his campaign. Shortly after the failed run at the highest office in the world, Mac had his first experience in front of a parole board. And, as you can probably guess, it did not go well. The first parole hearing I had was in 1982. I went to the board and I said, uh, you people in this government can't hold me. This is a bogus conviction that I'm on and I demand my release right now. I'm not asking for parole. You need to release me. They would ask me, did you commit the crime? I would say, I can't admit the crime. I have appeals uh, still in ongoing and I'm not going to admit that it was me. So parole denied. They didn't release me and it was over very fast. And within, uh, oh, I guess uh, a year or so, I was transferred back to Leavenworth Penitentiary. Max transfer to Leavenworth, Kansas, away from Marion, Illinois, would close a tumultuous chapter in his life. It would also mean the end of the long, complicated partnership he had with famed fellow skyjacker Garrett Trapnell. But as far as the last time I saw him, I actually says, I'll see you later, Trapnell. He was put in the K unit, and uh, that's a, a maximum security area of the prison. The most maximum security is for high-level, high-profile prisoners. And in his room, I think he had an oxygen tank because somehow he developed uh, emphysema. Jim Nelson, the FBI agent who shot Trapnell, foiled his skyjacking, and put him in prison for good, actually visited the Marion Supermax decades later. Then in the early 90s, a federal judge who oversees certain prisons, he said, I'm going down to Marion to just check it out as part of my responsibilities. Why don't you come down there with me? So I did. We rode down there, and the warden gave us a tour of the prison. And he took us into an interesting area called K Block, which was a story or two underground. And the only people there in K Block were Johnny Walker, the naval spy, the Jewish American who was convicted of espionage, of spying for Israel, and Garrett Trapnell. But Trapnell had been to see a doctor. So he was not there at that time. For years, he was in there, in the uh, unit. And then he was transferred to the Springfield Medical Center. And he died in 1993. Trap the Fox died September 7th, 1993 at the age of 55. And while Trapnell's storied career as a criminal mastermind is a pipe dream of one man beating the system, the legacy he left behind was one of manipulation, tragedy, and heartbreak. Being party to that legacy 
is something that Mac still struggles with today. I'm really, really regretful and sorry that we destroyed uh, Barbara Oswald and her daughter. And we really brought bad things into their life. The early 1980s were a whirlwind tour of the federal prison system for Martin McNally. Now, he had already done time at Leavenworth from 1973 until 1976. So I come in there and some of these guards remembered me from six years before. And uh, I never hit the compound at uh, Leavenworth for the second time because they considered me volatile. That was in 1983, I think. And I was at Leavenworth for a short period of time, and then I'll be damned if they didn't kick me out to the uh, maximum security penitentiary in Minnesota. And that was a screwball joint. Then they sent me to uh, Walla Walla, the state penitentiary in uh, Washington State. I was at Walla Walla for about uh, two years. And then I had a case in Marion that had to be uh, litigated. I was scheduled for uh, a trial, so they had to move me back to Marion. And this lieutenant, he says to me, McNally, you have the distinction of having the most time here at Marion of any other inmate. And I said, well, lieutenant, that is a dubious distinction that I'm not proud of. I've been here 19 and a half years. 19 and a half years in one fucking joint. After coming full circle back to Marion Supermax, Mac went up for his second parole hearing. And once again, he was denied. Probably every two or three years, I was eligible for a hearing. And I had those hearings. And every time I went to a parole hearing, it was denied, denied, denied. The constant rejection took a toll on Mac. And he began to accept the fact that he wasn't going to be free anytime soon, if ever again. The transfers every few years to various prisons around the country continued, eventually landing Mack in Indiana at Terre Haute Penitentiary. And it was here that Mack returned to some of his old ways, namely sticking it to the man and making money. In March of 2004, the warden posted a memoranda that uh, eventually, in September, all tobacco products would be removed from the prison, including chewing tobacco, everything. So in June, I decided that I need to stock up on tight tobacco, bugler tobacco. So what I did, every month, I would buy the limit. I would buy whatever I could, and I had probably about 250 of these pouches when it became illegal to have uh, possession of tobacco. 
The price of these things cost me about a dollar a piece. Immediately, it went up to $5 a pouch. I could have sold everything for five bucks a pouch, but I didn't. The price of these things went from $10 to $15 to $20, just like this. And before a very short couple of weeks, it was up to $50 per pouch, $75 per pouch, $100 for a pouch. Today, a pouch of Hormal would probably go for nearly $1,000 in prison, okay? That's what it is here. So I sold my tobacco, and I had realized a net cash of approximately 4,000 bucks. Mac lobbied the warden to let him move the money to a brokerage. Amazingly, the warden relented. Now, he had funds to play the market. And in typical Mac fashion, he dove in head first, and he couldn't have picked a better time. I opened an account with T. Roll Price in Baltimore, Maryland. And this was uh, 2007, going into 2008. As things turned out, that was when the market crashed. Down over 7%, shock and panic evident on the faces of those on the trading floor. Now what I did, uh, I was buying thousands of these shares. It would be a short-term uh, purchase. And I would be buying and selling Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, MBIA, and Ambic Financial. I was concentrating on these mortgage companies. And I'll be damned, I would buy thousands of shares for, let's say, 50 cents. In a week or so, it'd be up to 75 cents. And uh, before long, I had uh, seven or 8,000 bucks, 9,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks, account valuation of uh, 12 or 13,000 bucks. In just uh, a short period of time, I was doing nice. Mac rode the wave of recovery from the 2008 recession and became, at least compared to his fellow convicts, a rich man. Yet his frustrations with prison bureaucracy never faded. And he tried desperately to hang on to the idea, as unlikely as it may seem, that he might see the outside world once again. But in 2009, Mac turned 65. And after 37 years behind bars, the already dim hope of ever making parole finally died. I was in uh, the United States Penitentiary in uh, Atwater, California. The case manager called me into the office and said, you have a parole hearing coming up here. Would you like to go to it? And I said, well, I'll be frank with you. Every time I go to the parole hearing, they kick me in the head, disrespect me, and deny me. So it's over. I don't care about parole. I don't care about ever going to a parole board again. And I'm just going to stay in prison for the rest of my life until I die. That's the way it's going to be. I'll sign the waiver. He pulled out his paper. I signed the waiver. I don't want any parole hearing. With that signature, Mac legally waived his right to further parole hearings and essentially agreed to never breathe free air again, 
spending the rest of his years incarcerated until the time of his death. But then, fate stepped in. So, I signed the waiver paper. Figure I'm all done with parole. It's over. I'll stay in prison until I die. Well, coincidentally, a twist of fate here again. He goes on vacation. All of the papers he had in his desk, the waiver and whatever else he had, he didn't process it. So, on July 18th, I think it was, I was watching TV and somebody came to me and they said, Mac, you got a parole hearing. And I, I says, no way. Don't play games with me, dude. And he said, no, I'm telling you the truth. So I got out of the chair, went over the, the board on the wall, and I looked at it. And sure enough, I was on the list for a parole hearing at 9.30 in the morning. So I had to make a decision. I said, okay, I'm going to go to this hearing. So in the morning, I got up. I didn't carry anything with me. No parole plan, no paperwork with me. I just walked into the room, and it was a, a video conference with uh, an examiner in Chevy Chase, Maryland. He was on a TV screen. And it lasted for about 30 minutes to 45 minutes. I'm explaining about myself, what I've done in prison and so forth. And I said, for the very first time since I've been in prison, 37 years, I can now say that, hey, it was me. I pulled the score in 1972. And the reason I can say this is because all of my appeals are exhausted. And it's been a long, drawn-out process, and everything failed. I've got thousands and thousands of hours trying to reverse this conviction. And nothing worked. So I'm here to admit that, yeah, it was me. I said, I've never touched drugs. I'm of sound mind, I'm in good health, and I can be a productive member of society if you release me. Mac pleaded his case. And so it was that a man on a video screen who Mac had never met, who was nearly 3,000 miles from his current location, would determine whether or not he'd be able to walk free. Uh, he said, I'm gonna leave the screen here for a little bit. And he was gone for 10 minutes. Came back to the screen. He says, I'm gonna recommend you for parole. I was shocked. Totally shocked. I really couldn't believe it. Here I am, I'm gonna go home. I had a release date of 2082, and now this is 2009 and he's, he's released me. If it wasn't for that twist of fate where my case manager had taken a vacation, I would not have had that parole hearing. And I would never have again had a parole hearing because once you waive it, forget about it. I'm just gonna do my time in prison and if I can escape, fine. If I can, I'm just gonna die in prison, boom. Unbelievable. I mean, I was numb. 
It may have taken the better part of 30 years, from his appeal in 1979 to his release at the start of 2010, but Martin McNally's final escape had worked. And he was now a free man. But that freedom comes with responsibility, the responsibility for his actions, for the fallout of those actions, for the effects on his family, on Barbara Oswald's family, on Alan Barklage, among others. Now that Martin McNally was a civilian once again, he had a responsibility to follow the laws of the land and to come to terms with his legacy. So what exactly does a 66-year-old ex-skyjacker do with this newfound freedom? Well, my real plan was to uh, stay here for about maybe 30 days, not very long, and uh, take off on the lamb. I had intentions of uh, robbing banks, getting bank vaults. That's next time on the exciting conclusion of American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morecambe. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer, with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound, based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis, and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine, and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>